So I usually start uh, my sermons by saying, Welcome! Welcome to Pullman Foursquare Church! I'm so glad that you're here today. But I realize that that kind of gets really boring after a while. I just keep saying it over and over again. So um, instead of being repetitive and saying you know the same thing over and over again, I thought I would try something different this morning. So instead of welcome, I want to say, Bienvenuto! I'm glad you're here to hear from God, not to hear from me. I was asked this morning, do you have something to bring this morning? You know, you feel like you got something great to share with us. And I'm like, you know, I hope so. But what I really hope is that Jesus has something to share with you today. Um, and at the very least, we know that Paul does because we're reading from the book of Titus. Uh, the author is uh, the Apostle Paul, and he's always got something to say. But I believe Jesus has got something to say to us today. So, bienvenido to you. That is my absolute worst Spanish accent ever. But and I, uh, but I'm going to use it anyway because, uh, geez, we want to see the nations worship the Lord, amen. And so we want to welcome the nations. We want to welcome all nations, colors, races, creeds to this place to worship the Lord. So we say bienvenido today, and uh, we'll might use one of those other words that I can't pronounce next week. Does anybody know Darnt? D A R N T. It's I don't know. I don't know what language that is, but it's awesome. All right. If you have one, and it's important to have one, um, if you have a Bible with you today, open your Bibles with me to the book of Titus. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2. We're going to be actually looking at a whole chapter of Titus. Now, I told you when we started this thing, Titus is only three chapters long, so it's not going to be a long sermon series. We've got one more week left in it. Um, And the title of our sermon series, if you're a guest with us this morning, is The Elephant in the Room, where we've been talking about American politics specifically um, in light of what Paul had to say to his uh, protege, Titus, who was a pastor of a church in Crete uh, back in the first century, long, long time ago. Um, so as you're opening there, um, we're g- I'm going to try to do this fairly quickly because I know it's, it's, it's 11 o'clock, and that means it's 12 o'clock yesterday, which means some of you are about to get a hangry, and I don't want that to happen. I want you to be able to stay with me this morning, so we're going to try to go through it quickly. Um, you know, how many of you went to bed last night thinking you were going to lose an hour? Anybody? Yeah, you and me, Eliza. I went to bed last night and I was like cursing the government for this, you know, time tax that they impose on us, taking our time away from us. I even made this poster that I was going to put out, you know, because I knew I was going to lose an hour someplace. That's not the poster. I have a poster in there somewhere. It's coming up. There it is. If lost, if found, call. There's my hour that I lost. And so now I have to put this up in the spring, apparently. So I, I was all mixed up. I woke up early, early this morning, like 5 o'clock. I'm not sure which time it was in. It might have been only 6 o'clock, and I was worried I was going to be late for church. I was going to miss it. Everybody's going to be here sitting. You ever had one of those dreams, Rochelle? You're like right in front now. So you're like, where you wake up, and you're like, there's a whole church of people waiting to hear me preach, and I'm not even there. You know, I just like, oh, I was all nervous. And so anyway, now I've got that out of, out of the way. We've got an extra hour of sleep, and so I feel really good. I feel really good, and so you guys feel really good, but we're going to move on. So now for the attention getter, if that didn't catch your attention. Heidi and I love murder mysteries, and if you're a guest with us, my wife, Heidi, right there, Pastor Heidi, you can call her. She is the young adult's pastor. She's really awesome. One of the things we absolutely love is murder mysteries. We like to watch the murder, we like to read them, but we also like to watch them on television. Um, maybe life isn't exciting enough for us or something. I don't know. We, like, we have a really pretty easy marriage, so we need some excitement. So we watch murder mysteries people dying. And right now we're watching one that was introduced to us by our friends Audrey and Kelly. It's called Death in Paradise. So it's a murder mystery set in the Caribbean. Yeah. I mean, it can't be any better than that. That's the, that's the detective in the first couple of seasons. And he wears a suit all the time and he just sweats and he's miserable and he's from England. 
But what's awesome about murder mysteries is that somebody dies, and especially this one, somebody dies, and then there's always a beach involved. So it can't get any better than that. Um, and I don't know how familiar you are with murder mysteries, but here's the thing about murder mysteries. They have three basic parts. They have the death, then they have the discovery, not just the discovery of the death, but the discovery process, and then they have the disclosure. Like So in these ones particularly, in all Agatha Christie's, they gather everybody into the room, all the suspects into a room, and somebody goes through and says, now it could have been this, and it could have been that, and it might have been you, and the person's like, it couldn't have been me, and then it was them, and then they get arrested and they go away. Someone dies. That's usually somebody we don't even care about, right? It happens in the very beginning. You have no attachment to this person whatsoever. So you don't aren't bothered by the death. You're like, whatever. So your whole focus, your whole focus is placed on the middle part of the show, which is the discovery process, where you're looking at all the different possibilities, all the different characters, all the different motives, all the different reasons why or why not. And in the middle of all of that, in the middle of the discovery process, there's this thing that always comes in. They're called red herrings. You guys familiar with red herrings? So red herring, I'm here to distract you. Exactly. A red herring is something that is especially distracting or misleading. So in a murder mystery, they always throw in these red herrings. You, you, you find this one person, and you think they're the one who done it. And I said it that way on purpose, because that's the who done it, right? So you always think they're the one who done it, and it turns out that they didn't. And there's usually three or four or five of these things, and you've got to go through the process of these red herrings, um, and apparently red herring is also a smoked fish, but that doesn't apply here. Um, it's just a red herring. Uh, so I, all of that, just to describe a red herring. I mean, that's the whole purpose of all that. So we've been reading Titus together, and I hope you've been exploring God's word on these subjects. Like, you've been looking at the subjects, and I want to remind you that in your bulletin, you open up the flap, there's a little list of scriptures in there that, that actually explore the things we're talking about. And so you could read one of those each day. And you'll have like a great little quiet time with God, and it'll be focusing you back on what he was saying today. And it'll help you explore the subject from another perspective, another author, another place in the Bible, written to somebody else. As I was uh, preparing this week's sermon and reading through this stuff, and, and reading Titus, and reading it from the perspective of everybody's favorite subject, politics, um, I realized that in the book of Titus, and in our world today, there's some things called red herrings. Things that grab our attention and distract us from the main purpose, the main point. It distracts us like a murder mystery from the murderer, but from good things. It takes our eyes off of Jesus. takes our eyes off of what God has been saying to us. As we've been reading Titus from this perspective, uh, the first week we were challenged by Paul um, in his letter to Titus, and his assertion that we don't actually have a political problem. Remember? We don't have a political problem. We have a faith problem. We're looking at our politics, we're looking at our world around us, and we're getting nervous, we're getting scared, and if you're fearful and afraid, if you're not experiencing peace and grace, then you have a faith problem, not a politics problem. We live in fear of the future. We have a faith problem. We need to trust Jesus more. And then last week we saw that faith problems can often stem from leadership problems, where we fail to just lead ourselves. We looked at some of the qualifications of a leader, but... Really, the big deal is, is as individuals, we haven't led ourselves well. We haven't led ourselves toward Jesus. We've taken our eyes off of Jesus and put them on other things, on the red herrings of our world. So this week, we're going to look at Paul um, as he takes one step further. So Paul, in this text today, in Titus chapter 2, he's really imagining what this mess of a church in the, in the, on the Isle of Crete in first century world uh, could look like and what it could look like in this mess of a church, in this mess of a culture, in the mess of a political system, 
And we can read it today in like this mess of the United States culture, the United States political system, what the church could look like if people really took their faith seriously. If they fully bought into the gospel message and allowed it to transform their living. And along the way, we're going to deal with some of those red herrings that I talked about. And in this culture today, I'd say that politics is probably our number one red herring in the church. It's the number one thing that takes our eyes off of Jesus. It's a distraction from the truth. So would you join me as I pray, and we're going to dive into the scripture together. Father, I pray that this morning you would open our eyes to see reality around us. God, the things that have uh, drawn our eyes off of you, particularly politics and the issues surrounding politics. Uh, and maybe it it's goes beyond that for some of us. Maybe it's our relationships, and maybe it's our careers, and maybe it's our degrees. God, the things that we focus our lives on that are not you. Jesus, I pray that you would reveal them for what they are, red herrings that distract us from you, and that you would, in your, your sweet voice, call us to faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump into the text. Now, as we've said, the letter to Titus is a short but super packed little book, right? It's got tons and tons of ideas in it. it Paul was probably, as I was reading this week, I kind of realized he's probably writing this on the fly, right? He's about to get on a sailing boat on the Mediterranean Sea. It's going to take him several days to get to the next place. And he knew if he didn't get this letter off real quickly and, and hand it to the, to the letter carrier and get it in that little white truck and get it driving off down the street, that it wouldn't get to Titus on time, right? So he is writing quickly. He's, he's got all these big ideas, and he's packing it into this little tiny letter. It's probably the modern-day version of a text, right? A little short text where we shoot out to our friends. But because it's so packed and because it's written to a culture 2,000 years ago and completely separated from us, we have to do a little bit of sleuthing, a little murder mystery work to tease out what it's trying to say to us. But let me give you a little bit of a spoiler. The big point, the big thing that Paul wants to share with us today, his big idea is this. As a Christian, how you live matters. Say it again. As a Christian, how you live matters. So some people are like, whoop, yeah, that's true. And some people are like, ooh, rats. I thought I could just come to church. I thought I could just, you know, join the club sometimes. Paul is going to teach us that we, what we do and how we live and how people see us really matters to the world around us. Let's see how he makes this point. Paul starts the second part of his letter with a command to Titus. Let's look at verse 2. But as for you, teach what, accordings with, what accords with sound doctrine. Sound means healthy or wholesome, correct teaching. This is the gospel of grace that Paul has been teaching. He's been going around the world teaching that Jesus Christ died for us so that we no longer have to work to earn our salvation, but through the cross we can be reconciled to God, that we can know God, that we can be in God's presence. And it doesn't take anything from us other than faith to believe it. This is the sound doctrine that Paul is talking about. Some of us would like Paul to have just left it right there. All right, gospel of grace, teach what is sound and healthy. We can hang on to that. But he's going to go on, and he's going to show us that saved people people that have bought into this message, people that have, through faith, accepted Christ, they live differently. He goes on to describe what that looks like for believers in different situations to live a life that accords with the gospel of grace. This is what he's going to show on to do. First, he deals with men and women who are older in the faith. It says, older men and older women, verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. What does that even mean? Be sober-minded. It's free from dominating influences. That means that alcohol doesn't dominate you. When you sit down with a bottle of beer or a glass of wine, 
your brain doesn't go, well, that's the first one. Where's the next three, right? We have to have three or four or five more to feel good about this. Sober-minded. That those influences don't dominate your life or control your decisions. He says dignified. Dignified means to take the influence of your life seriously. That you know how you live is going to be seen by the people around you. So they're dignified. They take their influence seriously. It doesn't mean that they never have fun and that they always wear a suit. Okay, because that's how we read dignified, right? Like, Ivan, you got to come and if you're going to be a dignified older man in the faith, you better get a suit and come with your tie and sit very seriously. It's not what it means. It's not what it means. It means you take your influence as a Christian seriously. That you know that people are looking at you and that how you live matters. Self-controlled. Doesn't let their passions and desires run wild, but intentionally hold them in check. Intentionally. They're sound in faith, uncorrupted in their trust of Jesus. Then he says, in love, agape, which is the actual Greek word, which is that word for unconditional love. It's not like you love your burritos or you love your tacos or you love your motorcycle. We're talking about how you love your children, how God loves us unconditionally, and it chases us and pursues us, that they are sound in love, and that these older men are supposed to also to be uh, sound in steadfastness, which is about patient waiting on Jesus. Now, that's for the men, the older men. Now, the older women, Paul says, are to live in the same way. Paul uses this word likewise right here. He says, likewise, women, women, you should live like that too. But in addition to that, those things are going to look a little different for you women because you're different. You're not men. You're women. You're in a different context. You have different friends. You have different responsibilities and roles in the world especially in first century Rome. He says it this way, likewise, look like this. He says, first of all, being reverent in behavior. Now this word reverent, it's usually used in secular context, not in the Bible, and it's used to describe priestess. So you'd have the temple prostitutes and the temple priestess who was running this, uh, this, uh, this worship to Aphrodite. And the priestess would go about her way and walk through the city streets with a certain dignified air and a position of authority about her. And people would, would, would bow before her or carry themselves in deference to her. Paul says that the women of the church should walk like a priestess. Walk with reverence. Now, their behavior is also to be reverent. That they're not slanderers prone to gossip or speaking poorly of others. Or slaves to too much wine. You know the older crazy ladies that come for mom's weekend and they hit the bars and go a little nuts? You guys know those ladies? This is what he's saying. Church, don't be like that. You're going to be walking and carrying yourself as a priestess, as somebody who is a daughter of God. Carry yourself with reverence. Don't talk bad about people. Don't gossip about people. Don't tear each other down. And certainly don't go out there looking to get, to get lit, right? to use the vernacular. I love how you guys chuckle when I use those words. <laughs> Going on. Women, there to teach what is good, and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Women, get to it. Now, before somebody decides to use this cross to actually crucify me, we should probably talk about one of these red herrings. The red herrings that the church has 
grabbed onto that distracts us from the point of this text. And one of the red herrings that many churches teach regularly and keep women in a certain position in a certain role in their society. You know, basically what we had as I read that is an elephant walked into the room and sat down in the front row. And and I know some women like maybe turned your ears off. I, I know I saw my wife go red and we got to deal with it. Okay, so let's do it. I think. Okay, so for starters, how we have read this second verse, so these these last two verses totally, totally has distracted us. Specifically, this text has been used to say that women are to be submissive to men and that they are to work in the home, that that is their place. Stay in your place, woman, would be something that would be said when teaching this text. And taken with some of Paul's other writings about women specifically can give us a general picture of women as second-class citizens. Now, as you can probably tell, I disagree with that interpretation of the text, and especially this. If we want to go home today, uh, we can't go into all of the other writings of Paul. We can't look at every time that Paul talked about women and deal with them. But we can clear this one up today, this morning. So first off, Paul speaks to older women. Now, in order to get this, you have to go back into the Greek. And I want to teach you a couple of words. He uses the word for older women. It's uh, presb- pres- I'm not even going to pronounce it right. Presbyteus to address them. This has been translated as over older women because it's the feminine form of presbytos, which is the word he uses for older men. Does anybody recognize the word presbytos, pres, presbytotis, or pres... You know, bleh, I can't even say it. Does anybody recognize that word at all? It sounds like Presbyterian because it is the same base word. Do you know what Presbyterian means? Elder-led. Elder-led. Throughout the Bible, this word is used to describe elders. And remember last week we talked about Paul was giving us a list of the qualifications for mature Christian leaders, elders. He says, look amongst the church and pick from them leaders and set them over people to help them grow up in the faith. Set elders over people. He is speaking to elders. First he says, men elders. You need to be like this, this, and this. And then he says, female elders. You need to be like this, this, and this. These are female elders that Paul is talking to. Leaders in the church. Christian women, Christian men who are mature in the faith. Secondly, Paul's overarching writing here is not to tell women about their place. It's just a small piece in this this bigger text. He's not trying to tell us all where we need to be he's calling us to live in a certain way if his goal is to tell women what their place is as he goes on later in verses 9 and 10 to talk about slaves then what we have to assume is that paul is cool with slavery and he wants women to work at home only and that is a great big leap of logic and it's not fair to paul paul doesn't like slavery and paul isn't pro women just in the home He says in verse 9, bondservants. Bondservants are slaves by choice, but they're slaves nonetheless. He says they're to be submissive to their own masters in everything, and they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. We'd have to assume that Paul is saying that women need to just stay in the home, just like the bondservants need to stay as slaves, and they need to be good slaves, and the women need to be good home women. But Paul is making a bigger, bigger point. To take it one level further, Paul uses some very, very specific language in his commands to women. He says that women are to love their husbands. 
he's addressing a culture where women would run from man to man to man to man to work her way up the social ladder, to, to get higher in the social ranks, to have more money, more wealth, more power, more position. They were looking at women who, who were looking for love in all the wrong places, as the old song says from the 70s. They were moving from man to man. And re- relationships were open to some people at that time. They're like, yeah, just whoever you want. Just be with whoever you want and wherever you want. Paul says, no, women in the church, be faithful. Be faithful to your husband. Stay with you. Love your husband and your children because the children were getting forgotten in the midst of that. Women were so concerned with their social position. They were so concerned with how they were looked or perceived. They were so concerned with trying to buck the cultural norm. I'm going to work outside the home because that's what I want to do. The children were getting forgotten and they were not experiencing love. And more than that, they were not experiencing the love of God. And so Paul is reminding these women, look, you know that you've got these desires. We know that you have all these things inside of you, but be faithful to your husbands. Love your husbands and your children because they're a gift. Love them as opposed to loving other husbands, other people's husbands. Cretans like to buck, buck the cultural trends, and they like to create scandals. We talked about that last week. But Paul is saying, look, instead of creating scandals, instead of just bucking the cultural trend and just not doing what the culture says you ought to do, be submissive to your husband. Stay at home. Do the things you need to do to make Christ seen, to put Christ on display, that his love would be seen and known. So here's the big idea for Paul in chapter 3. Paul is addressing older men and older women, women in leadership, men in leadership. Then he goes on to address young women and young men and bond servants and slaves, each in their particular cultural context, where Rome, where Crete said they should be. And he says to them, shine for Jesus wherever you find yourself. He's not just saying, women, you need to be in this place. Slaves, you need to be in this place. Men, you need to be like this. He says, whatever context you happen to be, if you're a woman and you're in the home, shine for Jesus in the home. If you're a man and you're in the marketplace, shine for Jesus in the marketplace. If you're a slave and you're working for a master, shine for Jesus to that master so that that master would see Christ in you, so that he would be glorified. In a way, our reading of the place of women in the church and home has become a red herring, a distraction from the larger point that Paul's tried to make, just as politics has been in the United States. Many Christians today are concerned with creating a good and godly society through our democracy, right? We're concerned about our rights and freedoms, even the freedom of religion, the freedom to, to worship how we want. We're concerned that our society keeps allowing these things, just as the first century church was really concerned with where people should be in the social order of things. What this text teaches us is that God is not so much concerned with social order or even creating a godly nation as he is with creating a people who reflect his character in whatever circumstance they find themselves. In verse 14, he says this, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is what God has been trying to do amongst us to make a people who shine for Jesus, to make a people who reflect the glory of God, who show the goodness of God through how they live and how they act wherever they happen to be. It'd be pretty easy to read these lists kind of like a report card. 
for appropriate Christian performance. You know, do I measure up? Check. I did this. Check. I'm I'm dignified. Check. I wore a tie. Check. I'm working in the home. Check. Oh, I think I love my children. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Did I love my children? Check. You know, it'd be easy to do that. As a child, I was taught that just to be sober-minded meant don't drink. And that dignified behavior meant dressing correctly and not being silly in church, which I have utterly failed to do over and over again. Silly in church is just how I roll. But this isn't Paul's goal. He's not concerned with people behaving in a culturally Christian way or even voting in a culturally Christian way. He's concerned with their maturity as Christians. And he's saying, look, mature Christian life. This, these behaviors are the outflow and they will come out of you, not should come out of you. You notice the difference between the words will and should? Should looks at somebody and says, you're not behaving the right way. You should behave this way. But Paul is coming from the other direction. He's saying, look, if you're a mature Christian, you will behave this way. It's just going to come out of you naturally. And it's going to look very different than the culture around you. It's going to look very different from the world around you. In the culture of the Roman Empire, people lived under the rule of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. Or, the other side of that is they grumbled and complained and fought about the positions that they were in and were constantly scrabbling to get out of it. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds a lot like our world to me. We'll either give in to our desires and our passions because, you know, there's what's, what's tomorrow all about? Or, we look at our circumstance and we complain about it. This is probably where much of the church lives. I know this is where I fall time and again. I look at my circumstances. I look at my paycheck, or I look at my home, or I look at my town, or I look at my family, or whatever. My family's actually really great. I don't know why I would look at my family and do this, but like, oh, why is it like this? You know, why is it like this? It should be different. I should be able to live differently. I grumble and I complain. stuck at home, someone would say, or I have a lousy job, or our politics are going to H-E double hockey sticks. A life that was lived, as Paul suggests, as a mature Christian, it would have stuck out like a sore thumb in the midst of their culture. That is what Paul is calling women and men in our culture to, to shine for Jesus, to let their lives look different than the culture around them as they walk with reverence and dignity, as they carry themselves like children of God, as they stop giving in to every desire and every whim and, 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 and always working just to climb the ladder, but seeking the better of others instead. Seeking to love people instead. Seeking to worship God and to make Him known. A life like that would have stuck out like an LED flashlight in a dark room or even worse, like you know, driving down Highway 26 at night and you've got that one guy with his Mercedes Benz coming at you with his high beams on and those crazy LED halogen things that like, you know, like there's the sun and then there's those headlights. And you're like, ah, you know, that that's how life would stand out for these people. That's what it would look like. Paul is saying, look, don't give in to your culture. Shine. Don't just be stuck under the weight of these things. Shine in the midst of them. Don't just buck the cultural standard and get out of it because you want out. Shine for Jesus wherever you're at. Shine for Jesus. And whatever you do, don't grumble, don't argue, don't say, oh, it needs to be better, it should be like this, it should be like that. Just shine for Jesus in the midst of it. Let Jesus shine through you and see how it affects the world. Have you ever noticed that when you ask preschoolers 
to do something that they almost never respond with immediate, yes, Dad, I'll do that. Sure, Mom, I'll go do that. Have you ever noticed that? You could be like, hey, here's a sandwich. Come sit down and eat. And they will look up at you and be like, why? And then you're looking at them and you're thinking, because you're hungry. And if you don't eat this in the next 15 seconds, you're going to turn green and evil. And, if, and so eat the sandwich, please. This is what a preschooler looks like. When, you know, They always ask why, right? Why? And I think that that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Not just telling us to shine for Jesus, but telling us why. Why are mature Christians different? Why do they shine? It's not because they're supposed to or because Paul said that they, they, they should. That's one of my favorite responses to the kids. Why? Because I said so, right? Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, women, just you know, stay in the home, shine for Jesus there. Why? Because I said so. Stop asking questions. He doesn't do that. He says this isn't an act. It isn't something we have to generate in ourselves. He says they shine because they have a deep motivation, a deep belief. Deep beliefs lead to bold decisions. Deep beliefs lead to bold decisions. And those decisions make you shine. These men and women shine in their context because they believe deeply in the gospel of grace. The message that Jesus did all the work necessary for us to be with God and to know God. And that it was a free gift. And because they bought into that, because they believed it deeply, because they were disentangling their lives from the world around them and focusing their attention on the cross and on God's love that was, was made known on the cross, their lives began to look different. Their deep belief changed their behavior. These men and women shine in their context because they believe the gospel of grace. Here's how he says it in verses 11 and 15. Let's see. Yeah. For, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. This is Paul's declaration of the gospel. Jesus came and he saved us. Now skip ahead half a verse and he says this, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, there is an outflow of the belief. They believe that Jesus came and died and saved everybody, and the outflow of that belief is that they live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, in the time and place that they were called. Verse 13 they were waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That struck me as I read that, to redeem us from lawlessness. Often we think about being redeemed or saved from the consequences of lawlessness, right? That we look and we say, hey, we've sinned, we've fallen short, that death is the, the punishment of this, that we're going to die someday and we have a choice of, heaven or hell and the end of this thing. Paul doesn't say that. What he says here is that he saves us from lawlessness itself. From the need to be lawless. Did you ever realize, I think oftentimes people in our culture, they think, hey, you can't tell me what to do. I am free to choose however I want to choose to live, right? We say that. The reality is, when we say that, we're actually often saying it from a position of in, in bondageness, and that's not even a word, is it? We're being in bondage to something else. You can't tell me what I want, what, what I should do. I can watch whatever I want to watch on television or the internet. And the thing is, when we watch whatever we want on the television or the internet, those things wind up holding us captive, making us slaves to them. I can drink however much I want to drink. And we start drinking, and the next thing we know, we are in bondage to that beverage. Sounds crazy. Paul is saying, 
not only are you set free, and does your salvation like just save your soul, but it sets you free from the need to be lawless. It sets you free from every bondage to lawlessness. And then here's the punchline. He says, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. This deep belief that God appeared bringing salvation, buying into that leads to bold decisions to live differently, to live free of lawlessness, to actually be self-controlled, to live a life that shines for Jesus. Secondly, saved people take their influence seriously. So bold decisions lead to bold, or bold belief. Deep belief leads to bold decisions. Secondly, he says this, safe people take their influence seriously. This is the truth of mature believers. They take their influence seriously. I've noticed in myself, and thankfully in others too, a general overestimation of what we're capable of doing. When I was in high school, I, uh, I took wood shop. And I had this, uh, this idea that I was like this master craftsman. So I found this project that I wanted to make. It was actually a silverware box of all things. And it was about this big. And I was going to make it out of walnut. And it had wood inlays in the top. It had these 90-degree angles with special joinery and all this like fancy stuff that would go into it. I mean, a master craftsman would have a hard time making this thing. And here I am in ninth grade, and I'm going to make this thing because I can. I've got all the tools. I'm capable of doing this. I can do it. I barely passed woodshop that semester. I bit off a little more than I could chew. I overestimate, and I know that many other people do, overestimate what we're capable of doing in this life. But here's the other side of this. I've also discovered that I tend to underestimate the power of my influence, the power of my life on display for other people to see. And I've discovered that because here I've been hearing stories from people uh, my wife will go to her small group, and she'll come back and say, it was really amazing. We were talking about this whole other thing. And somebody goes, hey, Pastor Jamie brought this up in the sermon a while ago, and this is what he said. Or a young adult will copy what we do or how we live. We've seen it over and over again, all these ways that our influence as a couple, just living our lives and saying what God calls us to say, is affecting and changing other people. And I think that it's true for all of us, whether we have a microphone and a stage or not. Our lives on display have an influence that we tend to underestimate. We don't think that the world is watching, but the world is. The, the believer's why here in, for, in Titus was their belief. But they had a second why in the end of verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Titus had his own special one in verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, so that how Titus lived, reflected so well on the church that nobody could say anything bad about the church. How many of you know that people in this world are actually looking for reasons to not like the church? To not want anything to do with God or Jesus? We're, we're just, they're looking for excuses. And Christians do a really good job at giving people excuses, right? Right? Mahatma Gandhi said, you know, I love your Jesus, but I don't love your Christians. You know, even Gandhi was looking at the church and saying, there's so many excuses, so many reasons to not follow Jesus because of the people who were following him. And Titus is, Paul has told, been told his friend Titus to not put the gospel to shame by how he lives. People were actively looking for reasons to say Christians were evil, that religion was pointless, and that God was not real. Titus, let your life be your proof. Then in verse 10, Paul addresses even Christian slaves. Christian slaves of all people. And he says this. He tells them to do all those things. You know, be, 
be a good servant, work hard, please in everything. This is why, so that in everything you may adorn the, God, the doctrine of God our Savior. If the gospel is an outfit that you were putting on, accessorize it with your good works. Accessorize it with your great attitude. Show off the gospel. Highlight it. Don't, don't cover it up. Don't get the outfit dirty. How you live influences other people. Paul describes the gospel kind of like a virus in this text. It's like a virus that's passed from one person in line at Safeway to another. You know, they got that one guy, he's like, hi-choo! And then he goes and uses the pen pad, and you're like, oh, you, you know, you wish you had a little wipey or something. And, you know, it's like a unicorn, they sneeze, and the rainbows come out, and then everybody's infected with rainbows. It's like a virus that passes from one person to the next really, really easy. Paul says that the Christian life is so contagious that the living a mature Christian life as a believer will naturally point the next generation to Jesus. And it will naturally point your coworkers and your boss and your boyfriend and your girlfriend and your wife and your husband and your children. Living a mature life as a believer will point people toward Jesus. Now, it won't lead them there, and it won't make them accept Jesus, but it will sure give Jesus a good name. How you live influences other men. Or how you live influences others. Old men teach young men. Old women share what you've learned in all places and in all contexts. Live a life that shines for Jesus and reveals him as he is, that the name above all names, the name to which every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess, that that name will be made great. The self-portrait of God, his character, his self-sacrificing love will be seen with how you live. How you live your life speaks louder than any words or any vote. Now, is there issues that we should always vote pro this or anti this? Are there things that matter deeply to God? Yes, there are. But those things, your vote does very little to change them. What Paul would say is if you want to change those issues, get involved. Don't just give a check to the crisis pregnancy center. Show up and counsel young women who are pregnant. Love young women who are pregnant and thinking about aborting their baby. You want to change the social circumstances? Don't worry about what your vote's going to do. Get involved. Start shining for Jesus in those places. Saved people live differently. Saved people shine because of their belief. Saved people take their influence seriously. So how do we grow? How do we get to these places? How do we allow Christ to shine through us? Just two ways, and I'm just going to close with these things because we're going to watch a video in a minute um, as a closing. We're not going to sing a song today. We're going to have kind of a different ending. But I want to share these two quick things of how we can actually grow. Because that's kind of the big question. How do we get to that place of maturity? How do, we, how do we grow up in our faith? Firstly, I want to say this, especially to the younger generations in this room right now, which, you know what, there's a lot of pastors that I know who are extremely jealous of this congregation because there are so many young believers who are growing in the faith and who are hungry for the things of Jesus. It is so cool to be a part of this body. So I say to you, younger people, find an older person and get in their life. Older men and older women, be an example of what you've learned. Be a shining light for what Jesus has done in you and actively seek to share that with people that have not experienced it yet. Get in each other's life. Discipleship happens life to life. It doesn't happen sermon to sermon, unfortunately. It doesn't happen program to program. It doesn't happen college group to college group. It happens life to life, face to face. 
Again, faith is a viral infection. It's powerful enough to influence the culture as it's lived out. It's powerful enough to transform you just by being in proximity to it if you allow it. In other words, the people you surround yourself with influence your belief and ultimately how you act. The people that you gather around you will shape you. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Show me your mentors, I'll show you your future. If you want the sort of life that shines for Jesus like the stars, if you want the mature faith that is changing and shaping this world as well as your own life, you have to be willing to do what nobody else does. You have to be willing to get face-to-face and life-to-life with other believers. So jump into a small group. Find a sermon group. Join the college ministry. Find other believers. Rub shoulders. Get into the text. Study the Bible. Mature Christians, can I tell you something really special? Having spent a lot of time with young adults in this church, one of the most common reasons that I have heard that young people choose this church is because there are older, mature believers here who are willing and able to invite them into their lives. You have an opportunity to influence the future of the church, older, mature Christians, like none other. Take advantage of it. Invite people into your life. Secondly, Paul says this weird thing in verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing bringing salvation to all people, training us to dot, dot, dot. It says that the grace of God appeared, and it did two things. It brought salvation, and it trains us. It trains us. It's totally weird, right? Grace training us? Like, it seems like something we, we need to do. We need to train ourselves in grace. We need to learn to give ourselves grace. We need to learn to extend to grace others. But that's not what this is saying. It's saying that grace actually trains us. It teaches us something. As we gaze upon God's grace, as we gaze upon the cross and we ponder the depths of his love for us. The depths of our sin is also revealed to us. The, the reality of our brokenness, our desires and passions that run wild, and the places where we're out of control in our living, those begin to be revealed because they don't look like Christ's self-sacrificing love. Grace reveals to us what, not just what we are, but what we will someday become. It's so cool that God talks to us, not as as though we're just who we are, but he speaks to us on terms of what we will be someday in him. And it's grace that trains us to become that person. There's these places in our life where we look and we're like, I'm not like Jesus there yet. My question to you is, can you name those places? And can you name specifically the places where your life is out of control? Can you name specifically the places where you don't walk with dignity, where you don't carry yourself as a son or a daughter of God? Can you name the places where your identity is so skewed that it changes your behavior? Can you name the places where you don't shine like Jesus? Because those are the very places that God's grace wants to pour out and train you to become what he's intended you to be. A lot of people can't. And then a lot of people don't because they feel powerless to do anything about it. And I want to tell you this, you are powerless to change it all on your own. Good news, you can't. You can't do it. But grace is training you in that area to do what? To renounce, to turn away from ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age in the time and place that God has put you 
here in Pullman, Washington in 2016, whether you were 11 years old or 11 years old, as they say in The Hobbit, the time and place that God has put you, living upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Does God have you? Does he have you? Who are jealous for good works. How you live will show that God has you. Let me close by asking you this question. Are you shining from Jesus wherever you at, or are you busy complaining and grumbling about it? Does your life reflect the goodness of God? Would people, especially outside this church, know that you are a believer in Jesus? Does your speech, does your action, does your caring, does your decisions with your schedule and your time reflect God and a value of following and pursuing him? Or does it look just like the rest of the world? Is your life a red herring that actually draws attention away from Jesus? This week is uh, prayer for the persecuted church. And uh, around this world, there are Christians who do not live in a democracy like ours where we get to make decisions about our leaders and who are not in this world that is not friendly toward Christian belief or worship. Many people around this world face martyrdom when they let their life shine for Jesus. Martyrs are people who, because of their deep belief in Jesus, have been singled out by their culture and who have lost their lives by making him known. I want to show you a video about a modern mar martyr. And uh, we're going to close actually by praying for the persecuted church, and then we're going to have a benediction about politics and, and how we interact with it. And Kristen's going to do those things. But I want to share this video with you. And as you watch it, I want to warn you, this is a hard video to watch. But I want you to know that I'm not showing it to you because I want you to feel guilty about how you're living. But I want to encourage you about how you can live and the sort of life that would actually lead toward people seeing Jesus in you. Shine for Jesus wherever you find yourself. Church, don't let politics distract you from living a life full of faith. Don't let your life distract others from seeing Jesus. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds as we watch this video and that we would be encouraged in you. God, that we would not look at our circumstances and be defeated, but that we would rise victorious in you and shine your goodness to this world, to all generations, to everybody that we know and everybody who sees us. In Jesus' name, amen.